Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Today is episode number nine. And as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today I have a special guest and I really feel privileged to have him on the show. His name is Philippe Tessier and he's an award-winning chef. He has been part of the team who received the three Michelin star at Percy in New York. He has as well won the Silver Bocuse in 2015. And he was the coach who brought the American team to victory and won the Bocuse d'Or in 2017. Hi, Chef. We met not too long ago, and I was very impressed by you telling the story about the Bocuse d'Or, and I wanted to have you on the show. So welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you. And again, congratulations you know, for winning the, uh, I would say, the silver Bocuse on 2015, and obviously winning with the team, the US team in 2017 as, as a coach. Yeah, I think it's a pretty, uh, pretty exciting journey. So for, for the people who never heard about it, I mean, can you please describe what Bocuse d'Or is? And maybe at the same time, who is Mr. Paul Bocuse? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with Paul Bocuse. Paul Bocuse is pretty much considered to be the, uh, the godfather of modern French cuisine. You know, really kind of transformed French cuisine from the kind of the classical heavy dishes to that we know now as Nouvelle Cuisine. And we might consider his Nouvelle Cuisine to be very heavy still, but at the time is total revolution and in the cuisine of, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. He, he was somebody who was not only, you know, a transformation of, of French cuisine as, as one of his legacies, but really became kind of the first celebrity chef as well. He was one of the first chefs to step out of the kitchen, engage with the guests. Uh, he, he was an amazing marketer and really kind of set a standard for chefs to kind of reach beyond, you know, the normal kind of behind the scenes role that they they'd always had. And so it really kind of was somebody who galvanized modern chefs in many ways and the reverence that there is for him and what he what he did is is extraordinary to see. And so uh, one of those things that he was able to do as a result of his not just his legacy but who he was as a person was to start the Boku store. And Boku store simply means golden bokus. So it was a competition that he had started in 1987 that was really meant to bring chefs together from around the world, bring chefs outside of their kitchens, get them to kind of rub shoulders with one another and create a friendly or maybe not so friendly competition that kind of centered around French cuisine and the classic cuisine of the time. So it's basically a competition that's held every two years. It's always in Lyon, France, at a stadium dedicated to Paul Bocuse. Yeah, it's a pretty wild venue, 2,500 screaming fans, 24 countries that have been whittled down from an initial selection of 60. And it's a pretty wild ride. And I think, I think it's pretty amazing to see kind of how it's evolved, you know, over the last 30 years. 
Yeah, because it was um, created around like uh, at the end of the 80s, correct? Like 1987, something like that? Yeah, 1987 and then every uh, every two years. Okay, so what the, what does that really mean, you know, in the in the chef's world? You know, that type of competition. I mean, I don't know if the people, you know, realize that maybe they think, oh, that's, a, you know, a competition like another one. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a challenging one a little bit because, you know, when we look at this competition from a distance, you know, it's it's chefs in white toques and, you know, white jackets and doing, you know, maybe French style cuisine to some degree. And so, you know, a lot of people don't resonate with that, especially in today's world where, you know, casual food is you know, kind of the, the, the craze, right? But I think what we, what, the interesting thing for me has been that, you know, when we went to compete in 2015, you know, the best we'd ever done was sixth place. And for years, like nobody expected anything in the US. In fact, we're kind of seen as the burger and hot dog country to a lot of people. And so when we came and we took silver, everything changed. The level of respect for the country changed. You went from, you know, us following what other countries were doing to them following what we were doing and, and coming back and winning gold in 2017 just kind of cemented the U.S. as a key player in the world of of high level cuisine, and and this competition is followed, you know, not just by people who are into French food. It's you know part of the competition is has how well you represent your own country, and so it's really seen as kind of the golden standard of any type of culinary competition, and it also represents, I think, how your country has evolved in its level of cuisine as well. So, how many countries are represented in this competition? So originally it starts with, it's kind of like a World Cup structure. It starts with about 60 countries from all the continents. They have uh, kind of national selections where each country selects, you know, a team, which is a, a chef and then a, what they call a comi or apprentice. So they have to be 22 or younger at the time of the final. And so they do a national selection and then there's a continental selection. So you'll have, you know, in Europe, for example, you have 20 countries competing for 11 spots. And so you basically, these continental select selections happen in the Americas, then in Europe. They just had one in Africa for the first time this year, and then in Asia. And so it kind of comes down to a final selection of, of 24 countries coming from, from these continents. Tell me about the moment that, uh, or the day that you realized that you wanted to participate yourself in, in the Bocuse d'Or competition. Yeah, it was really at the Boku store that I, I made that decision. So you, you went in like, uh, just like watching it? Yeah, so I went, I went in 2013. I was working at the French Laundry at the time and I was part of a team that was going over to do a dinner with Chef Keller for what they have. So just to give you an idea of, of the uh, gravitational pool that Paul Bocuse has, uh, they have a dinner every, every year as part of the Boku store that's called the Dîner de Grand Chef. And it's basically... An assembly of a who's who of chefs, and there, I think there was close to 200 Michelin stars in one room that night. And you know, it's like us and Elaine Ducasse, you know, alternating courses. And so I was there for this dinner initially, and then you know, we were able to kind of see the team a little bit here and there. And then we went to the final competition, you know, after our, our event was done. And so 2013, I found myself, you know, in the stadium for the first time, watching a competition that I'd heard about, seen about, you know, kind of seen a few documentaries here and there, and. But it's kind of like me explaining to you what it's like to be three rows back in Madison Square Garden. Nothing really kind of prepares you for Yeah, work. I don't have the thrill of it, for sure. Yes, compared to for you there. Yeah, when you're sitting there as a chef and you're you know, watching this display and you, you know the intensity that these guys are working under and to see kind of their level of, of finesse and execution and the culinary wizardry that is on display there and then the energy in the stadium... 
I, I still have the sound of the UK marching band, you know, kind of resonating in my ears. I think, you know, faces painted, Japanese are beating drums. You know, I mean, it's just like, where am I right now? <laughs> you know, and, and it's such a dramatic experience. And I think the thing that's missing from what a lot of people don't get from, you know, watching this from a distance or hearing about it is, is a sense of patriotism that's there. And, and that adds a layer of emotion and experience that, you know, you don't get from other, you know, cooking competition shows and these types of things. You know, there's anybody can kind of pick their favorite or whatever, but when it's your country, it's a totally different game. And so, you know, being able to kind of see that and feel that and know that we could do better as a country based on, you know, who we are and what restaurants we have in this country, it seemed like, man, we can really do this. And so that's kind of where I really caught the bug. And then, you know, there's a whole in front of the Paul Bocuse restaurant, which is kind of the uh, mecca of cuisine in France, especially and, and across the world. For many, there's a row of names engraved in the walkway leading into the front entrance. And all of those names are past winners of the Boku store, bronze, silver, gold. And so we went and ate there that night. And then, you know, looking at those empty squares kind of for what would be 2015, 17 was like, wow, this is, this could be us. You know, why could, yes. And so that was where I really kind of caught the bug. And the next four years were kind of marked out from that point. So what were the steps, uh, you know, that you took to get ready for the, the first competition, the one in, in 15 when you won silver? Yeah, it was a real challenge in, in many ways. You know, I, I really didn't know kind of what I was getting into <laughs> in a sense. I mean, I knew obviously the, the clear structure of the competition, but, you know, I'm not a competition chef, generally speaking. And, you know, Richard Rosendale, who had competed in 2013, you know, developed a lot of structure within the organization to establish that. And, you know, that was the biggest kind of learning curve for me was kind of, all right, what does it mean to compete? Like what skill sets am I missing, if any? And like, how do we organize ourselves? But you're constantly from day one, you know, there's a, from day one of training, you're, you're just, the clock starts ticking and every day just feels like you're, you're falling behind if you're, you know, not meeting the calendar that you set. So, you know, we basically set a calendar, we set clear goals. You know, one of the amazing opportunities I had was to work with Martin Kastner, who's the designer of, uh, and owner of Crucial Detail, probably best known for his work with Alinea, a lot of the service pieces and experiences they've been able to execute through, you know, the tools and pieces that he's provided for them. So that experience was pretty extraordinary working with him and kind of going from kind of the possible to achieving the impossible in, in forms of execution and design. But I don't think the, the people realize, I mean, again, you know, I have seen the pictures, of course, when it happened. You know, I'm French. I live in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I had goosebumps, obviously, for you guys, you know, in, in uh, 17. You know, when I've seen uh, the U.S. winning, you see those pictures of victory and the team on the podium and, uh, every, you know, uh, you know, all the riot and everything. But I don't think that people realize, like, behind the scene, in order to get ready in, in 15 or 17, it's, It's to understand like the countless hours of developing, of testing, of preparing, of working as a team and working together. I don't think people have an idea of what it takes. Yeah, zero idea. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people are used to seeing cooking shows like you see on television where it's, you know, a quick challenge. You have three hours, you do this and you go boom, 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 you're done. And, you know, that shows how much skill you have built into who you are, right? And The Boku store is a totally, totally different journey. You look at what Olympic athletes 
do to prepare for their events. And you kind of know behind the scenes, these guys that just train incredibly hard for this. But, you know, you watch them run a race, and you're like, cool, they did it, you know? And so behind the scenes for us is a total, it's just a total human story of dedication and commitment. I mean, you're, you're talking about over 3,000 hours in a year of, of multiple team members' time and design time, and everything else that goes into us. And so... You know, in the beginning, you're putting in 10, 12 hour days, you know, it starts to ramp up and then you're working six, seven days a week, 14, 16 hours a day to, you know, you only have one chance at this, right? And and you don't want to show up that day thinking, oh, I could have done more. Every every time we go into this, it's giving everything you have and putting, you know, every effort into it that you possibly can to differentiate yourself from the other competitors because they're, they're doing the same. You know, it's amazing the funding and support of, you know, the other governments and in other countries. I mean, the crown prince of, of Norway or Sweden, you know, show up to their to their tastings. And, you know, I mean, it's just a whole level of that they have there. Is it the Olympics, you know, for a culinary world? Uh, most certainly. Yeah, it's I mean, what I would what I say is it's the World Cup because the selection process, everything is very, very similar. And, you know, it's really the World Cup of, of the culinary world. So can you describe what you, um, you know, you cooked and, you know, in front of those people and, and what it's like, you know, cooking, you said it's a stadium with 2,500 people chanting and, you know, it's completely different than being, you know, in, in even in some of the prestigious kitchen that you worked before. I, I want to understand what you did and then at the same time, what was the feeling about it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the way that the competition structured is, you know, every candidate is assigned a theme and an, and an ingredient, right? And so for us, it was guinea hen was our meat that we were d d basically assigned. And that came in September, end of September, we were given this information. And so at that point, you're, you're, you're scrambling, working hard to kind of define what, what we're going to do, you know, with the bird. And then towards the end of November is the plated dish. So, you know, it's basically five and a half hours, the two of you in the box, four burners in an oven a sink and some tables. That's all you get. You know, you have to bring everything else that, that you want in there. And so you're working from that moment that that protein's released to define what it is you're going to do. End of November, you're, the, the fish is was assigned to us. And so you have to design everything out where you're being creative, but then you're also training to execute these dishes. And so to give people a sense of how much detail you're going into and how much you're taking on in this short amount of time. I think we, we had 140 ingredients with 40 recipes executed by two, two chefs, one of them being 22 or younger in a matter of five and a half hours for, you know, a total of 28 plates. It's pretty daunting thinking about that, that task. And so essentially what we do is, you know, we, we basically define what technique and approach we're going to take, what the presentation is going to be. You know, we lock in those things. And I mean, that takes months, even up to the final day, things are changing. And then we put these into what we call timed runs, you know, and so you're essentially dividing the tasks, separating them out, and then pushing through it. And it's a it's a huge challenge to consolidate all of that effort in there. And Martin was amazing to kind of create tools and things for us that could not only create efficiency and save time, but also increase precision. And so, you know, when we get to the final rounds of training in the last two months, you know, we pump techno music into the kitchen at full volume to kind of emulate that. <laughs> wow. You, you literally can't hear each other in the kitchen. You can't hear your timers when they're going off. And so, you know, by preparing in every possible way for, you know, to create it, make it more difficult than it will be that day was, was kind of the goal. And then, you know, being in the box that day, it's, 
it's interesting. Like I thought I, I didn't know, like Skyler and I had never competed prior to that day. And, you know, we're going head to head with competitors from, from Norway and Sweden and other countries that had, you know, done this for, for literally a decade, multiple competitions with, you know, their national selections, other competitions outside of Boku store. And then both, you know, the two gentlemen who were on the podium with myself were both repeat, you know, Boku store candidates for their countries. So, you know, here we are like never having competed together in anything before. <laughs> and day one is Boku store final, you know, and so that was a huge, daunting unknown, but we were really surprised by the fact that we were just confident in our preparation and we were just excited. We were just excited to be there, show the world, you know, what we've been working on in the corner, you know, for the last, you know, 12, 14 months. And so I would say our training prepared us for that day in an amazing way. And we were just at full speed and you kind of block out everything around you. Like you don't look up. You block out the noise. It's interesting that you hear every conversation around you, but you know, you not only have this crowd around you, but you have kitchen judges watching your every move, making marks on how well you're working, your waste, your cleanliness, your organization, your communication, all the other chefs and coaches, you know, that are crowding around your box, the cameras that are in your face. So it's a pretty incredibly intense environment, but it's super fun. So this is when you, you won silver, correct? Right. Okay, so who won the, the gold uh, that, they, that you're in, in 15? So Orhan Johansson from Norway won gold. We've become really good friends since then. But, you know, that day it was, it was interesting because, you know, we had never done better than sixth in, you know, 28 years. And when we won silver, it was amazing. It was like, this was un, unachievable for so many years that we had won silver. And, and so we, you know, we finally got the scores and looked at it. Like we were nine points away from gold out of 2000. So, you know, you think about that, you're like, wow, we, we not only got silver, we almost won this whole thing. This is, this is incredible, you know? And then two months later, I was like, man, we almost won. We should have won. Like, why do you, <laughs> you know, and it was honestly a, you know, there's a lot of factors in, in how things are decided. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but at that time, you already worked with uh, Martin Kastner for in, in, in 15? Yeah, that was the first year we worked together. So that was a really interesting process of kind of coming together, like, really not knowing each other and how we both work. Probably it was a good three to four months of discovery of who we are and what our techniques and mentality are. And then that was where things really began to get exciting because I began to realize, you know, what his skill sets were and he understood kind of how I worked in our communication. And so between the two of us together, we were really able to kind of create a whole level of communication and 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 execution together that allowed us to kind of stop asking, can you do this? But you know, really reach out beyond the normal ask and, and achieve things that we didn't think either one of us were possible from the beginning. And for the people who are listening, can you mention like the, the value that he has added, you know, in, in that competition in, in 15? Because it's nothing to do directly with the cooking aspect, correct? This is, this is really the, uh, the technology in the kitchen. Yeah, sure. So when you think about it, you know, for us, we... You know, we start, I'll use the guinea hen that we did for an example. And so, you know, at the French Laundry, we would get birds in, we'll, you know, kind of remove the skin from the top, leaving it sort of intact at the base. And then, you know, maybe we put a mousse or a sausage or something, sliced truffle, whatever we might want to do. And then we pull that skin back over, we let it, we let it cure and set. And then, you know, we'll cook that bird. And so when you cut that breast off, you get a nice layer of this kind of mousse underneath the skin and it's really beautiful, right? And so 
that's great in a restaurant setting, but you know, for the Boku store, you have to have, you know, 14 exact portions and, you know, chicken breast isn't exactly same from end to end. So, you know, my challenge was like, how can I kind of get this layer and definition and, and, you know, not, I need to do it in a way that's even beyond the normal restaurant because here is, you know, this is the pinnacle of possibility. Right. And so by working together, we were able to create a wooden frame that acted as kind of a, a carcass in its form. And so we were able to layer in the breasts and layers of sausage and truffle and moose in there and wrap that in the skin and make it look like a whole bird. But when we were done, we were able to get, you know, six perfect portions out of each one. And so that was something where we took all of the natural technique and ability and, and recipes, et cetera, that we had coming from the professional kitchen. But by pairing that with the design element and the functionality of, of his repertoire of, of ability to create tools, et cetera, we were able to make something that previously wouldn't have been possible without that collaboration together. And it went beyond this. It went, uh, I think that uh, there was the whole aspect as well of serving, you know, the, the dish. No, Martin was hired on to kind of design the platter, right? So for the meat dish, you basically have to create a platter that's supposed to be, you know, breathtakingly beautiful and like a essentially a frame for for the food you've created. And so uh, you see a lot of silver and gold things and elements. And every year, it's the big anticipation is what it, what's the next winning platter going to look like? What's the new thing that somebody's going to do? And so that was what Martin was originally hired to do. And we kind of got basically sidetracked by all the tools and realized that was really the important thing because. The difference maker for us is that Martin looks at the food and its elements and then designs the platter in response to that. Where a lot of other countries, it's kind of like, okay, we're building a platter. This is like the design cool idea. And then we'll put the food on, you know? And so when you think about it this way, it's kind of like, okay, first we looked at the painting and then we decided where this is going to go in the room. And then we decided what frame we're going to build for it. And so the frame, you know, the platter we built was this really kind of magical, round platter with a massive hole in the center that we suspended our little corn nest that we had done. And then the guinea hens were kind of suspended over the top of that. And so it looked almost like, I think somebody said it was like a magic trick, you know, like, how does this, how does this all work? <laughs> and the focus was still on the food. Like that was my main thing. Like, okay, the guinea hen was our assigned protein. That needs to be the focal point and it needs to be, look like a beautiful whole roasted bird. That was, that was what we had kind of set out to do. And so Martin's you know, kind of genius in, in the world of design and, you know, understanding food as well as he does uh, really played a, an integral part in that presentation. And how uh, the the plating and, um, you know, the whole technology aspect uh, contributes into like the scoring, you know, for, for the Bocuse door. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, I always liken it to kind of like a movie, right? Like you, you have the first opportunity you have as an impression is when the platter walks by, it first comes out of the kitchen and the judges see that, you know, that's kind of the first impression you get where, you know, it's kind of the trailer to the movie, right? Like, you know, oh, this is looks amazing. I think I really want to go watch this. And then when they get to taste the dish and the flavor and profile of it, you know, that's kind of the full enjoyment and taking in of that storyline. And so, you know, there's kind of these elements where you're, you have different parts of the presentation that the main scoring is for taste, right? 40% goes to taste and temperature, et cetera, all the things that apply to that. And then 20% is presentation, 20% is how well you represent your country, and then 20% is your is your kitchen score. And so, you know, there's while the presentation score is lower than taste, you need that what I call the X factor wow moment of that that platter coming out, that food coming out and the presentation of it. Mm-hmm. 
After winning the, the silver in 15, so why did you decide to coach the US team in 17? It was really about you know going to finish what we started. Finished in 2015, we were on this amazing high. We were on this kind of like, wow, we can't believe we did this. And then it came down to, you know, two months later, as I mentioned, where it was like, wow, we were so close to the goal. Like it went from kind of an excitement to kind of a disappointment. Like <laughs> we could have finished the job here and now we got to go back and do it. And so it was a really matter for me of deciding, you know, whether I was going to compete or coach, but either way, I knew, you know, we have to go back and finish this. And so everything was geared towards that over the next two years of, Rebuilding the next team, building a kitchen for them, giving them everything they possibly could need to go back and do this. And so that's really what we pursued over the next two years. So yes, it was going back to finish what we started. So what's the challenge for 2019? Because January, correct? Uh, end of January, this is the, the new competition in the, the Bocuse d'Or, correct? In Lyon. Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge for 2019 is to to maintain our standard, you know, to maintain the level that we compete at. You can't control the outcome, right? And so whether it's bronze, silver, gold, you know, where you end up there, you know, obviously we want to be on that podium as a minimum, but we want to win. You know, that's what we do. And so, you know, we compete against ourselves in the sense that we know the standard we hold ourselves to and and you can't control what other people are doing. So, you know, the field's different every year. That's the ultimate thing. It's a competition and you're not competing against everybody you're competing against the 24 you know guys or girls that are in the kitchens those days and so you know our challenge for us is to maintain you know who we are as the US and and continue to deliver expectations and are you part of the the coach as well this year you know not having an official role with the team you know, I'm looking at opening my own restaurant hopefully in the future here and so trying to dedicate more more time to that because it's a pretty consuming process of you know, being the coach and and everything so a lot of the work I did for the team I tried to begin in 2016, actually, my two assistant coaches were are now the coaching candidate for the US. And the, the young lady who won the Comi competition we put on in a, kind of an effort to search for a Comi for the next year is now the Comi for this year. So they were all alongside the process previously. So that really helps with a lot of the continuity and the experience and knowing what we went through and a lot of those key elements. So, you know, my role now is... You know, I talked to Matt, who's our candidate now, on, on pretty much a weekly basis, and kind of confirming his decisions and interpretation of the rules, and you know the new the new tasks that they have in front of them, and then you know being in the kitchen with them at least you know twice a month, if not more, to kind of just be alongside the process, and that will ramp up probably in these final months to kind of once they start getting the training runs and giving them feedback and you know critiquing what they're doing. So you know they're right here in my backyard, so it's it's great to be able to kind of support them in the process. In between being a candidate in 19 and, and coaching the team in 17, which one was the most challenging? Coaching was a totally different experience. When you're the candidate, you, you're bearing all the pressure and the weight of everything, but you also are in control in a sense of like, you know what you can and can't do and where you're at in the process. You know, as a coach, you are working to do everything you can to give the support and direction that the team needs. And so... You're constantly battling what the right approach is for the moment you're in. And so for me, it was, it was a lot more stressful <laughs> in a lot of ways being the coach, uh, because, you know, certain things you're, you're kind of dependent on, on the guys who are the team, you know, and you're not always a hundred percent sure where they're at, you know, mentally, physically, you know, in their state of mind, you know, in preparation for everything. And so, you know, I think we had a strong sense of confidence in, in their skill background and, and, and abilities. 
but he, there was always some open-ended things even to the final day. I mean, you know, my book about the whole story kind of tells, you know, some of the challenges that happened even in the box on the final, on the final day. And, you know, those things were just incredibly stressful to kind of like work through, find the answers, find the way through. And so there was definitely a different level of experience. I think I prefer competing over coaching. <laughs> okay. And, and how did you inspire the, the team? Yeah. I mean, I think Matt Peters and I, we worked together, you know, in, at the French Laundry and, He was our candidate in 2017. So I think the inspiration really happened early on, even when I was training. He was a part of a few of our tastings. And, you know, that way he was kind of exposed to the process a little bit. And then when we won silver, I think that inspired a lot of confidence in our, you know, future team and who was going to be next. And so that was kind of our first conversation was, you know, on the heels of us, you know, winning silver was his interest in competing. And so I think the inspiration really, really began there as just the, simple decision to, you know, prioritize this in his career. And so, you know, from there, it was really, honestly, you're really just trying to support kind of the ideas that they come with. I mean, you want this ultimately to be their food that day that they feel excited about, they're confident about. And so, you know, my goal is to kind of, you know, create a vibrant culture of, of collaboration and idea sharing. And then, you know, really to kind of once we start locking into some some specific ideas to really encourage that process along and add feedback and advice and working with Martin and him together to kind of define the direction as early on as possible. You know, the sooner we make decisions, the sooner we can get solutions, the more time we have in the end to create, to kind of define, you know, the actual runs and the timing and, and, and all of that. And everyone can um, obviously uh, read all the details about this and I guess 17 and 15, you know, in your book, uh, Chasing Bokus. So what, what is the book about besides like the competition? I'm sure there's other elements. Yeah, the book is an interesting story. So, you know, after 2015, it was kind of this idea like, you know, hey, maybe we should write a, a book about this, you know, whole silver story and the journey. And it's a super rich story about, about people and about that kind of human experience of, of competing. And so that was the goal. We set out to write kind of that story for 2015. We actually sold the book originally to the publisher as a silver story. And then we started to realize, you know, we really should include the most recent story, whether we win or not. And of course, in my mind, it's like there's only one outcome to the story that, that makes sense for us. <laughs> yeah, I guess about five months before we went to compete in 2017, I, I started writing the story, continuation of that story of us winning gold. So, you know, told the guys, don't mess this up. You know, like we, <laughs> we don't want to go back and rewrite this. So, you know, it's really a story about the human effort behind it and the collaboration. You know, Mentor is our organization that the foundation that sponsors the team and creates the, the opportunity for us. And so all of the coaches and everyone else who was involved alongside the 2015 and 17 stories are included in the book. And it's pretty exciting. I mean, you know, it's Thomas Keller, Jerome Bocuse, Gavin Kaysen, Daniel Balloon and, and a long list of others, Grant Ackett's, you know, that are included in this story. And so it's pretty exciting when you look at this kind of idea of bringing all these amazing chefs together for a singular effort together as a country. It's a compelling story that, you know, I'm excited is finally being told. So that's what has changed in your life since the, the Bocuse d'Or? You know, a lot of things have changed in the sense of, you know, before the Bocuse d'Or, I was, you know, working for Thomas Keller and You know, that was for over a decade. And so, you know, you're in the kitchen, you love what you do, you're you know excited for what you've learned. And you obviously have a kind of a, a status and in, in a way of working for him. But, you know, when I when I did the Boku store, it really kind of just opened my eyes to a whole different world. You know, you're exposed to all these different chefs, different perspectives, different attitudes in the kitchen. And so, you know, it was kind of a real eye opener in that regard. And then 
you know, after winning silver, you know, really kind of just opened a lot of doors of, of meeting other chefs through mentor and in, in the foundation. And then, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't hurt, you know, having that on your resume that you uh, <laughs> open you know, that path through. And so, you know, it's created a lot of conversation with a lot of different people, you know, that I don't think I would have met otherwise. And so it's pretty exciting. And I, and I think one of the things that I, I love the most about it is just all the friends that I've made in the chef kind of community across the world, you know, friends in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, you know, in Japan, South America, everywhere, you know, and so that's been really exciting. And the book's been great because, you know, we went from nobody really caring that we were there in 2015 as kind of like a high five, thanks for coming to, you know, now we have a book about about how to win the Boku store, basically. And, you know, when we go to events now around the Boku store, there's a huge level of respect for who we are as a country and what we've achieved. So that's the biggest takeaway and satisfaction from this whole thing. So, and, and you are the, the director of the culinary and media at uh, Heston Culinary. So can you tell us what is uh, Heston Culinary and what's your role there? Yeah, so this is like a totally different world that I found myself in. You know, I kind of originally stepped into, you know, this project that was going to be, I thought, a six-month consulting role while I was kind of working on a restaurant post Boku store in 2015. And, you know, what got me into this this project with, with Heston, which is, you know, a company based here in, in, in Napa Valley, is the idea that we can, you know, teach people how to cook in the home. You know, when we think about our kind of culinary landscape as a country, it's evolved and changed dramatically over the last 30 years in such an extraordinary way. But kind of underlying that is this thing that's not talked about much, which is the fact that a lot of people just aren't cooking anymore. They don't know how to cook. They didn't grow up cooking, you know, both parents working and, you know, this kind of thing. And so you have this kind of group of or our culture in our country where like people are essentially they're on Instagram, they're on, you know, all of the food networks, they're, you know, they have Whole Foods across the whole country, so there's access to ingredients and information and all of this, and yet people can't execute that for themselves. And so I kind of got in this, involved in this project where it was like, how can we connect, you know, what we know in the whole world of technology with cooking and, and cooking is specifically on the stove was our starting point. And so essentially, we built this smart cooking system, which Imagine that you can take your oven dial, you know, where you set an exact temperature and you can now do that on your stove. You can now set your stove to 300 degrees. And then it's kind of a question of like, well, what do I cook at 300 degrees? And kind of understanding how we can take that level of control on the stove, connect that to an app. And we have step-by-step guided video recipes for the consumer, you know, throughout that. So it's a pretty fascinating project. We're launching, you know, internationally this year with this. It's being built in not only into our sister company with Heston Residential, but with GE as well. And so I've been driving kind of the whole, you know, kind of concept decision making of, you know, from a culinary perspective, what the right thing is to build and then kind of doing all of the recipe development, testing, media development, and then, you know, now working more on kind of business partnerships, et cetera. So that's what I do by day. And then by night at Spoku store and, and working on future restaurant plans. So then you are a believer of, of course, science and, and technology in the kitchen. So how much science uh, influence your creative process? I would say the creative process is the starting point. And we, my general philosophy is like, Let's build what we want to build and do what we want to do, both for Boku Store and, and in this project. And then science comes along to really make that possible. So we have a team of culinary scientists that work you know, full-time on enabling the technology to give the level of results that we want. So for example, like you take a steak and you want to cook it perfectly medium rare. 
super impossible to do in a pan, right? And so what we do is we measure that. We have you measure that steak. You tell us whether you tempered it or not. And then in the background, you tell us, or in the app, you tell us how you want it cooked. And then behind the scenes, you know, we've created algorithms for every possible scenario. So we now have a recipe that's made specifically for that steak you just selected. And so now you're cooking in a pan in about 12 minutes, a perfectly medium rare steak. So these are kind of things that science does in the background where there's like just a massive amount of testing and validation, you know, algorithm building, you know, pid tuning, like all different kinds of things that we do to make all of this possible. And, you know, now we're moving from kind of a, a countertop burner into built-ins across the world, localization of content, everything else that we need to do. So the culinary science team is, is exceptionally important to what we build and they're quite busy. So the start point of the inspiration is still the produce, correct? That's the, that's the produce that um, starts like the, uh, the innovation process for you. And then the technology is a way how to deliver it the way you want. Like what we look at is our level of success is what we deliver on, on the plate, right? What is the consumer actually enjoying and cooking in their own home? And how good was that final product? There's a lot of technology out there that's really exciting, but it actually really doesn't deliver anything better. You know, there's kind of this play out there for a lot of companies where like, hey, let's build something really cool. Let's throw some key technology in it and then, you know, we'll, we'll market it. But ultimately, we just want to get acquired and make some money, right? We're not in that game. We're in this game to really help people cook better food and partner with people who are going to help us give them better access to ingredients and, and connect that to the cooking experience and give them all the information so you're not on YouTube, on some recipe site and somewhere else. Like everything's right there in front of you. And you're you're literally learning how to cook by putting food on the table as opposed to trying to download a bunch of information and then try to execute on your own. So I want to uh, come back a little back uh, a little bit in uh, in uh, your previous life because you you mentioned obviously Thomas Keller, but you started and I mean, you work with a lot of prestigious um, chefs. It was, uh, of course, speaking to my DNA that you spent some time in uh, Le, Mougin, Le Moulin de Mougin in, uh, with Roger Verger. I used to live, in fact, a few miles you know, from there and I've been <laughs> to uh, the Moulin de Mougin. And uh, then as well with Eric Ripper and Le Bernardin and then Thomas Keller, you know, Percé, Bouchon and, and obviously the French Laundry. So you work with um, a lot of those iconic individuals. What did you learn from from them, and how it helps shape you know you as the professional and the chef you are today? Yeah, I mean it's interesting how you learn something different from everyone, you know. And when I was in France, you know, the two places I worked there, you know, I just was absorbing the culture, the language, you know, and the cuisine all at the same time. And I think that gave me, you know, kind of just deepened my love and appreciation for. French food and the French culture surrounding food. And, you know, when I was at Verger's, you're just the reason I went there is I wanted to see what this classical cuisine was from, from one of the, the pioneers of it. And it was a really amazing experience to be there for, for that time. You know, he was still there at the time. And so, you know, took away kind of, you know, from that whole six month experience, you know, what the French culture and mindset was behind the food. You know, I think you can, you can follow a recipe and you can cook something, but if you don't understand sort of the culture, behind the food, like you're missing a big part of it. And so coming to New York, it was a huge eye opener of New York City and cooking at the highest level and 
with Chef Repair, it was all about the fish and the quality and the way it was treated. And then the sauces in that kitchen are amazing. And just what goes into that and the history behind a bunch, a lot of the, the core sauces there. And that was kind of the, the prized position in the kitchen was to be the saucier, you know, and it was a six month minimum commitment once you got there and, you know, you're sitting there making 25 sauces every night for all of the stations and the chef comes by and he's tasting them all before service and you're kind of crossing your fingers, you got it right. And so, you know, that was the key thing was just kind of looking at the level of attention and detail paid to that. And then, you know, I was part of the opening team at Per Se and that was my introduction to Thomas Keller, which was just blew my mind, you know, just the, the, the level of intensity and the team that was assembled, not only to be the team in the kitchen, but the whole French laundry team that was there to train us for that launch of that restaurant, which was pretty extraordinary. So, you know, the amount of knowledge in that kitchen was was really exceptional. And you went there when they got the three stars Michelin? Yeah, so I was part of the opening team in 2004. And so we got four stars New York Times about uh, six, seven months later. And then about a year and a half later, the Michelin Guide came to New York. And uh, yeah, I was part of the, I was a sous chef at the time um, when we got three Michelin stars. And prior to the Boku store, that was pretty much the exceptional moment in my career where, you know, you're there as part of the team that made this possible for the first American chef to to get three Michelin stars. And so that was a pretty exceptional moment for us and our team. You know, and the takeaway from from working for Chef Keller's, you know, in, in so many layers, but ultimately, you know, it's the level of detail you pay to to everything, you know, quality of ingredient, where it comes from, how it's treated, you know, how clean is your garbage room? You know, if your garbage room is clean, well chances are you're paying that level, same level of detail to to the rest of of your work. And so you know, we have a quote that's like, treat it like it's yours one day, it will be, you know, having that sense of ownership and, and commitment, you know, to, to what you're doing. So, you know, from each of these chefs, you kind of take away different things that kind of shape who you are in your own, your own style of cuisine as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your new project? You're saying that you are working on opening a restaurant. So I guess it is in uh, the San Francisco area in Napa Valley. Yeah, so we have the uh, huge challenge of location out here in Napa. I'm looking at somewhere in the Napa Valley. You know, we've had a few locations that we kind of got close with, but you know, ultimately didn't work out. And so there's a few locations, you know, that we're looking at here. You know, hope is to kind of lock something in in the next, uh, you know, six months here, if not sooner, and then focus on an opening in early 2020 if possible. So uh, you know, a few different ideas of you know what kind of food it will be, but um, it, most likely you know kind of a modern American cuisine and. Uh, you know, something kind of in the fine dining realm, but location kind of determines a lot of things. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. Well, then good luck for your new adventure then. Yeah, thank you. Now, Chef, it is time for the rapid fire questions. So where where do you go uh, when you want to culinary travel? Where I'd want to go next would be Asia. Somehow, I've never made it to Asia. So going to Japan, traveling through there, seeing all the things you've heard about would be would be next. That would be the, the, the first thing on my list. Who is the chef that you most admire today? Uh, I think the chef I most admire today as far as, you know, the relevance, you know, that they're having is, I mean, I would say um, in, in some ways, well, I guess you got to narrow it down to a chef. I mean, I, I think what Thomas Keller has done, obviously, has been you know, amazing. It's kind of the obvious answer on, <laughs> on on my part. You know, I think what Grant Ackett's has done as well has been, you know, really impressive and seeing him kind of really expand beyond the borders of Chicago. So I'm really interested to see uh, kind of where he goes next. 
what is uh, or what was your most memorable food moment outside of, you know, I'm not talking about being a chef, but I'm talking about tasting something. There's so many. <laughs> I think honestly, like one of the most memorable moments, if I just think about food, is uh, I was actually in Paris and we were there after Boku store, just my wife and I, and uh, we were going to go to this bistro called Chez Michel. And I just remember like walking up to the door and just the aroma that was coming through the front door of just truffles and roasted meat and everything was just so like, it just drew you in, right? It was cold outside, it was a little drizzly and you're just like, I'm in the right place. <laughs> and, and just, you know, those, that, that moment, you know, and of course the meal delivered that, but it was kind of just that, that ambience you can't create outside of great cuisine. So what are your favorite restaurants or bars in, uh, in the San Francisco area? Yeah, there's a long list. Um, <laughs> I know. You know, from a from a three star Michelin level, you know, Benu is is amazing. You know, I used to work with Corey, and it's been amazing to see him really come into his own and his own style of cuisine. You know, we went to Monsieur or um, Mr. Jus, Brandon Jus location there in in uh, San Francisco, and just seeing what he's done in the middle of Chinatown is pretty awesome. I would say those are two two of the top ones there. You know, Mexican food, Nopalito is amazing. Down there, they do a really amazing job. Can you give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating? That's a tough one. I would say probably, you know, just the classic roast chicken with whatever side you're doing, depending on what time of year it is, would, would probably be, be top of the list. My favorite thing in the kitchen is fish. So I can't say I could pick a specific type of dish, but, you know, pretty much anything based around fish and, fish and seafood would probably be, be somewhere in there. You know, I think beyond that, probably just a good taco. <laughs> no. What is your favorite one? You know, it's got a, like, I don't know, some good, like, carne, spicy carne asada. Probably be where I'd live there. Okay. So thank you very much, Chef, uh, for, for your time today. And that was really um, very exciting. At, um, it was a, an uh, unbelievable moment for me to, uh, you know, to watch the, the U.S. team winning in uh, 17, the Bocus Door. And, uh, I wish obviously all the best for the team for 2019. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. If you have suggestions about who would be great to have as a guest on the show, please answer the question in the comment section of the contact page on the website flavorsunknown.com. I will do my best to contact them and try to see if I can get them on the show. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.